Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Why is it so hard for the Republican Party to pick and keep a Speaker of the House? Brian, it's it's really all about conservative media and how they've inverted the power structure on Capitol Hill so that the people who actually wield the power are the people who, you know, 30, 40 years ago would have been in congressional Siberia, banished by their leadership for being difficult to work with. Mm. And instead now are superstars on social media and on conservative media. And, you know, they just go running to their conservative media allies. And then everybody else, what we call the the hope yes, vote no caucus, or in the case of the speaker vote, probably the hope no vote yes caucus. And huh. the reason they voted yes for Jim Jordan, um, even though they don't really want him to be speaker, is they're all afraid of primaries. And they're afraid if they get bashed enough on the conservative media and their constituents get angry enough. You know, Sean Hannity's posting the phone numbers of everybody who voted against uh, the Jordan and saying, Hey, call your representative. These people are all worried about losing a primary where like 10, 11% of the people show up and they're in deep red districts. And it's the most activist types who consume conservative media. And if they become the, the punching bag or the pinata for conservative media, their careers are imperiled. Hmm. That is Brian Rosenwald, the author of talk radios, America. His book's subtitle says it all. It's how an industry took over a political party that took over the United States. And I'm the other Brian, Brian Stelter. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. Also with me is Abigail Tracy, national political reporter for Vanity Fair. She's been spending her days covering all of this Capitol Hill chaos. Abby, are you having fun yet? Um, I don't know that I've been having fun at all throughout this process, so I, I don't even know that I could say yet. Um, it's certainly been a Groundhog Day situation on the Hill, for sure. And that is our topic today. We're going inside the congressional commotion. We're exploring the influence of Fox and the far-right media machine on the U.S. House of Representatives. If you've been reading and hearing about the House's failure to elect a new speaker, and you've been wondering what is going wrong, this episode is going to help explain it. So, Abby, let's start with you. Kevin McCarthy was ousted in early October. Now we're in the middle of October. In the past few days, Jim Jordan emerged as the great right hope, although he couldn't get the votes. So who is Jordan and how did he emerge? So Jim Jordan is, you know, he was one of the founders of the House Freedom Caucus. So he was far right, uh, kind of bombastic lawmaker, and he really built up a reputation and built up a name as being, you know, a bomb thrower. Here's an individual who has not passed a single piece of legislation in his 16 years in Congress, which is remarkable. And he really kind of through the Trump era, his profile just grew and grew because he was sort of a Trump attack dog. You know, you saw him vigorously defending Donald Trump during the two impeachments. Really, he's sort of a red meat throwing uh, right wing member of the Republican caucus that really, you know, his audience is the Republican base, is, you know, the Trump base. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing. You know, you saw Kevin McCarthy go through 15 rounds of votes 
And then you saw Steve Scalise go down um, in the initial nomination process. And really, you know, kind of from the ashes, Jim Jordan rose because he's an individual that is seen by that base, you know, the, the mega base as kind of their guy. Media Matters, the, the anti-Fox progressive group, it calls Jordan uh, Fox's man in Congress. Uh, they, they say Jordan's a charter member of the Fox News caucus of Republican politicians who boosted their careers through the network's airtime. Uh, Brian, have you observed that firsthand? Absolutely. You know, you go back even 5, 10, even 10, 12 years, um, Jordan is on talk radio. He's on Fox News almost constantly, and he's happy to bash his own leadership. Conservative media has spent years and years and years running down the establishment, the Republican establishment, um, the Republican leadership, people like Kevin McCarthy. I talk in my book, I have this epic rant uh, that Mark Levin went on, the talk radio host, who's probably the loudest and angriest of the hosts. But he went on this rant where he basically basically says, you know, he, he calls for primaries against John Boehner, Steve Scalise and Kevin McCarthy. And he kind of ends up by saying, you know, McCarthy, I wouldn't let him sell me a used car to, to say, look, th- this guy is the worst of the worst. And then they wonder, you know, these hosts were all upset last week. They wonder like, well, why? Why is it that McCarthy got dumped and it's because they created people like Jim Jordan. They made these people, they turned people who had no institutional power into real power players in in our politics. Abby, remember Jim, uh, Louis Gohmert, who Mm -hmm. was on Capitol Hill and, and Louis Gohmert's a guy who his name kept coming up in interviews I did for my book where People would say, staffers would tell me, congressional staffers would say, you know, every time there's drama about the speakership, somebody in my family is like, well, what about this Louis Gohmert guy? He's great on TV. And he was actually Sean Hannity's vacation fill-in sometimes. And these staffers would have to say, you don't understand, Louis Gohmert can get like four votes up here. But the real, you know, change over time difference here is that Jim Jordan got 200 votes, you know, and maybe a little bit more than that over time. And it's, a byproduct of the fact that the, the power structures changed. Yeah, you know, actually, one of the really interesting things um, when you say that, Brian, is the other day I was talking with Thomas Massey on the Hill, and he, I think, summed up the dynamic really well. He said that, you know, voting against Kevin McCarthy was popular with the Republican base, whereas voting for Jim Jordan was popular with the Republican base. And I think what you really saw in Jordan's ability to get as many votes as he did was really that fear, you know, the fear of the base, the fear of conservative media and the way in which that that drove, you know, reluctant lawmakers, reluctant Republicans to cast their votes, partly out of fatigue. I think, you know, being on the Hill right now, there really was a sense of people wanting this to be over, wanting to get past this moment. It is embarrassing for the Republican caucus, of course. But I really think that quote in particular summed up kind of how we saw Jim Jordan's rise, despite the fact that he isn't viewed as an individual who could expand the Republican majority in the House. And we've heard the Democrats in recent days tarring Jordan as an insurrection insider or insider. Abby, what's the background there? How real is that? Um, Look, Jim Jordan still won't admit that Joe Biden won the presidential election in 2020. And then in addition, you look at the call logs from January 6th, and he had calls with Donald Trump that day. And, you know, even after it unfolded, you know, the Capitol attack unfolded and, you know, things really came into focus as to, you know, 
how terrible that day was, he still didn't change his tone. He still didn't, you know, admit that it was bad. And he still didn't, you know, vote to certify uh, Joe Biden's victory. And you saw that in the first House vote. Uh, Democrats, a number of them stood up and said, I'm voting for Hakeem Jeffries against an insurrectionist. You know, it, they drew boos from the other side of the aisle. But you also saw individuals like Ken Buck coming out and saying that Jordan's inability or, you know, reluctance to admit that Joe Biden won the election was a real problem and why he was never going to get his vote. One of my favorite emails that came out through the post-January 6th investigations, uh, through the House committee, through the Dominion litigation, you know, all of those those documents that came out uh, were the messages between Mark Meadows and Sean Hannity. And in one of those messages that I, I use for my book, Network of Lies, that comes out next month, uh, there's a message from Hannity to both Meadows and Jordan uh, after January 6th saying, guys, we have a clear path to land the plane in nine days, but Trump can't mention the election again ever. And I find that so revealing Then the immediate aftermath of January 6th. Hannity thinks he's running the country along with Meadows and Jordan. Like, he thinks he is in charge. We're going to land the plane safely. But let's make sure Trump never mentions his big lie again. And, of course, now here we are three years later, and uh, the big lie is the whole point of Trump's reelection campaign. But it's so interesting that Hannity and Jordan were so close, so cozy, um, that, you know, they were, like, working in concert after January 6th to try to calm the, the stormy seas. Um, you know, there's a couple of interesting things in what you were saying, Brian. Um, first and foremost is that, it, and again, talk radio cable news kind of made this world. You, you hear Hannity say that, and it's almost like he's then shocked that they turn around their base voters actually still believe the big lie. The other thing that, you know, we can't underestimate is the synergy between conservative media and people like Jim Jordan. You know, Hannity spent the weekend before these speaker votes having producers reach out with like veiled kind of, uh, we want to know what your member's position is, but we heard he might be against Jordan. Now, like justify yourself kind of messages. And why is that happening? It's because these guys are the de facto party leaders. They are the most influential voices with the critical primary voters who determine the fate in a country that has geographically polarized. You add gerrymandering on top of that. And for most of these guys, the only election that matters is a primary. They don't have to worry about a general election. And they realize that they could be gone in a heartbeat if they don't hew to what the conservative media guys want them to hew to. Let's read that email from the Hannity producer. It is fascinating and worth analyzing. Uh, more with Abby and Brian in just a moment. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. We're going inside the congressional chaos, the Republican Party's inability to elect a new permanent Speaker of the House. Can I play devil's advocate, though, for a minute with, with emphasis on the word devil? 
and and trying to understand where the, the typical Republican congressman's coming from. They are reacting to an audience, to a to a voting block that just constantly feels disappointed, constantly feels let down. That for decades, and again, this is what this voting block believes. The government just continues to grow no matter what. That, um, you know, the the interference in their lives just continues no matter what. I'm not sure I believe any of this, but I'm I'm just trying to imagine what it's like for them. They feel like Republicans get elected to Congress and then always fail them and disappoint them. Isn't that some of where this pressure comes from? The sense that the base is always disappointed by the people they elect? Absolutely. And I think some of this is... Republicans have played this kind of devil's bargain game for decades of let's throw red meat rhetoric. Let's sound like Jim Jordan on the campaign trail because we need to turn these base voters out, especially as you know polarization grew and there were fewer voters in the center to try to persuade in an election. It was, okay, even the Brian Fitzpatricks of the world have to turn out these base voters. So they throw them red meat on the campaign trail, all well knowing, look, I'm going to govern responsibly. I'm going to do what I have to do. And then their voters are like, well, wait a second, this isn't what you promised. And maybe the best example of that is George Herbert Walker Bush, who hmm. basically saw governing and campaigning as two different things. So in 1988, he runs the red meatiest of red meaty campaigns. Um, he's maligning Michael Dukakis's patriotism. He's attacking him on the death penalty. He's, you know, the, they have the veiled Willie Horton ads, which are, are you know, pretty racist, um, maybe in, entirely racist. And he gets elected that way, but he never intended to govern that way. He always thought, you know, you do what you have to do to lead the country in the right direction. So you get to 1990 and he agrees to raise taxes. He breaks the no new taxes pledge. Well, that infuriates the base. And what what happens with time, and this is a conservative media story, is over time, you've got hosts saying, look at these rhinos, Republicans in name only. They Mm -hmm. promise you all this stuff. They never deliver. And all these listeners are out there saying, hallelujah, someone is saying what we're feeling. Someone is saying what we're thinking, and they start saying, well, we want the politicians who sound like our favorite hosts. And you get this cadre of guys. You get the Jim Jordans. Um, you get the the Louis Gohmerts, you know, you you get uh, Matt Gates, who started this whole thing by deposing, you know, leading the fight to depose Kevin McCarthy, who are great sound bites. They are great at throwing red meat and going on being guests. And it's increasingly with time, the Republican establishment, Republican leaders, those Republicans who say, look, guys, we have to cut deals because there's, you know, the Senate filibuster and there's divided government. And right. this is what is required. Well, that doesn't sound good on radio or television. People would much rather have Jim Jordan say, look, the sellouts in the leadership won't fight for you, but I will. I am your champion. And that really resonates. Let's take a listen to Jim Jordan on Fox. Here he is talking with host Laura Ingram. Congressman, isn't it fun being so loved? I feel the same way <laughs> lately. Yeah. So isn't it, doesn't it get the warm and fuzzies? Does it really upset you to hear that criticism that you're just going to be the ant at the picnic of the January 6th commission, your reaction well, to that. No, I tell my colleagues all the time, if, if the mainstream press and liberal Democrats aren't saying something bad about you, you're probably not doing anything any good. So, I mean, you know how that, you know that feeling too, Laura, you're out there fighting the good fight and you get attacked by the left all the time. So that's just part of the deal. Fox audience loves that he's a so-called fighter and he's willing to pressure his colleagues. And that's how he got to 200 votes and then 199 the next day. Do you find that when you're on Capitol Hill, 
Do, do some lawmakers admit to these dynamics, Abby? Do they recognize this incentive structure is broken? <laughs> So I don't know that they really necessarily admit to it. I will say that when you are on Capitol Hill, you know, some of the same faces that you see on Fox News, you'll also see on the Capitol steps spewing the same rhetoric, saying the same things. And it's like they do take advantage of those moments. They do take advantage of the immediate attention. Whereas I think the people trying to avoid, you know, the chaos of the moment, you don't see them so much. You know, they have fake phone calls and they run out and don't want to talk to you. Like that's kind of what happens. You know, Matt Gates. He's probably hanging out on the Capitol steps, ready and willing to speak with you. And I think one of the real things that is kind of happening, and you both touched on this a little bit, is in this whole conversation, they're ignoring the realities of divided government. Look, Democrats control the Senate. Joe Biden is in the White House. Kevin McCarthy, for his, you know, to give him credit on both the debt ceiling deal and, you know, trying to avoid a government shutdown. He tried to pass these ultra conservative bills. He tried to, you know, feed that base, feed what, you know, the Matt Gates and other individuals were calling for. They didn't pass. They didn't even pass, you know, House Republican muster with their majority in the House. And so his only option at a certain point was to work with Democrats. And I think that is being sort of missed in this broader conversation is there this group of individuals, you know, kind of these talking heads that you often see on Fox News or the individuals who have really kind of hamstrung, you know, the United States government in this moment, they have no interest in governing. They don't want these things to happen. They don't want legislation to be passed. They don't want a continuing resolution. They want smaller government. They want things to come to a halt. And so the reality is, is like they're not actually seeking solutions. They're just creating problems. Is it fair to say they want to be in the minority? They're stuck in the majority, but they would rather be in the minority. I, you know, I, I think so. I mean, I think they have no interest in necessarily growing the majority, but these individuals have a different incentive structure than, you know, a typical member of the House. Look, there are 435 members in the House of Representatives. The individuals that took out Kevin McCarthy are eight people. And, you know, they're operating with a different set of goals. And, you know, it was interesting on the day of the first House uh, Speaker vote for Jim Jordan, the first one to introduce Hakeem Jeffries, he mentioned in his speech, he said, you know, here, Jim Jordan hasn't passed a single piece of legislation in his 16 years in Congress. And Matt Gates and other individuals applauded that. That is the thinking. And they're missing this broader, you know, conversation around divided government. And Kevin McCarthy, you know, despite, you know, giving so much to the right flank of his party, at a certain point, he did pass some stuff. He had to work with Democrats, (laughs) though. And ultimately, that was his downfall because of this group that is so driven by conservative media and, you know, is they kind of feed each other in this sort of dynamic of chaos, really. Mm hmm. Yeah, and we can see that really vividly with that leaked email from a Hannity producer that I teased earlier. Uh, And this was an email sent out to to many different lawmakers. It was Hannity's attempt to get Republicans on the record about whether they supported Jordan or not. And, you know, the, the, the sense of pressure comes through very clearly. I'll read part of it. Hello, Stephanie from The Hannity Show with Fox News. Sources tell Hannity that your representative is not supporting Jim Jordan for speaker. Can you please let me know this is accurate? And if true, Hannity would like to know... Why, during a war breaking out between Israel and Hamas, with the war in Ukraine, with the wide open borders, with a budget that's unfinished, why would your representative be against Jim Jordan? Please let us know. I'm I'm not emotionally involved in this. But however, if you come up short of anything, if you come up anything short of electing a speaker, in this case, Jim Jordan 
has the support of 200 Republicans. He needs 16 more. Doesn't, it doesn't sound like a lot. And if you can't get over the fact that, well, your guy lost or you didn't like the process or you didn't like this or you didn't like that, and you can't put aside that your own personal you know, agenda, whatever it happens to be, or the idea you're mad that your guy didn't win, whatever the reason, you've got to put it aside because if you don't see the big picture, the patience of the American people, my patience is running thin with all of this. And you're going to risk putting all of your jobs in jeopardy in the process. So, Brian, that's Hannity on his radio show Tuesday afternoon saying his patience is running thin. You know, it's a prime example of how he thinks he's in charge, you know, and in some ways he kind of is. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I want to come back to something Abby said, because it fits into this there. He, he's kind of in charge. And yet there's this disconnect, which is his job is to reflect and voice where his audience is and to speak to his audience because his goal at the end of the day uh, is to what the, the late talk radio host Rush Limbaugh called charge confiscatory advertising rates. Translation, my job is to make money. My job is at the biggest possible audience for the longest possible time. And the only way that you do that is by putting on a good show, sounding the way that your audience wants, if they're frustrated, voicing those frustrations. And they don't have any responsibility to govern. Abby mentioned these people on the Hill who don't seem to care about governing and maybe would be happier in the minority where they can just lob bombs and not worry about it and have no responsibility. And some of that comes from a conservative impulse of like, we're the anti-government party. So if this thing doesn't work, it's just going to hurt the other side that says the government is like this good force. Um, and, and it makes our anti-government rhetoric sound better. But some of it is coming from the fact that to get on conservative media and for the hosts themselves, they don't care about governing. They don't care about what divided government requires. They don't care about, you know, oh, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, the economy could crash. Or if we don't keep the government open, there's going to be people who need to go on a business trip suddenly out of the country and realize their passports expired and there's not going to be a way to, to renew that or something like that. They don't care about stuff like that. They care about our base is angry and frustrated and we better, you know, voice that. And there is this whole veiled thread of like, Hey, you don't want me to to back your next primary challenger. You don't want this to to blow up in your face and your career could be on the line. So you better get in line and do what we want. And there's another far right media player that's also a part of this story. It's Steve Bannon. We're going to talk about him in just a moment. And if you are watching this video, Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, speaking with Abby Tracy and Brian Rosenwald. Um, Abby, let's talk about the Steve Bannon angle here. Uh, I think it's important to note it's not just Sean Hannity on the radio and on TV. It's not just Laura Ingram. It's not just these Fox and radio stars who are part of this pressure campaign and and moving the Republican Party in a, in a more uh, extreme direction. It's also Steve Bannon on his podcast and, and web show called The War Room. So a bunch of blockbuster news. Number one, Jim Jordan. We're going to get into this a little bit later. Jim Jordan, for reasons that are beyond my grasp, instead of staying on the freaking floor on Friday and expose them and just let it roll and vote and vote and vote and unmask these old bulls, they did a struggle session on Friday. It turns out McCarthy called for the, the private, the anonymous affirmation vote, which was a mistake. So you got to understand McCarthy's not working. He's not pulling for the team Jordan. And of course, Emmer's not pulling for team Jordan and he's the whip. So he was being very explicit, even handed out phone numbers, try to get this done. Yeah, I think that we, when we talk about this and this idea of conservative media, you have it's such a broader ecosystem and there are all these different players that are in it that kind of fit these different roles. You know, you can have a Sean Hannity who's on Fox News and, you know, in some ways he can almost seem reasonable relative to a Steve Bannon who's really going to be out there and is going to be incredibly aggressive in the people that he targets and, you know, sort of the rhetoric that he builds around these individuals. And I think what you really have seen is kind of all these pressure points coming at these various lawmakers. And you really saw that on the Hill after Steve Scalise went down, you know, behind closed doors in a secret ballot vote. What you really saw was Republican lawmakers just reluctant that like Jim Jordan, you know, kind of was foisted upon them. And I think there was a recognition, though, that, you know, all right, I guess we have to swallow this giant pill because you have Steve Bannon, because you have Sean Hannity, because you have Laura Ingram. And it's really coming at them from all sides. And the way in which the ecosystem is set up and all these various pressure points is it makes reasonable actors or, you know, close to reasonable actors seem unreasonable. So you have individuals who are like, I don't think Jim Jordan, who, you know, still denies that Joe Biden won the election, should be the leader. The second in line of the presidency should be the leader of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives at this time. And yet you have, you know, these voices and all this rhetoric coming at people that make it seem if you're a Republican who votes against Jim Jordan, you're unreasonable. You're holding up the system and you are you know, the problem. And so even on the House floor during that first speaker vote for Jim Jordan, there was a difference in, and this is, you know, me watching from the press gallery, but there was a difference in enthusiasm among certain members. You know, some would stand up and they're like the honorable Jim Jordan and others were like "Ah, Jim Jordan, you know, and I think it is a reflection of, you know, the forces that are working against them. And Steve Bannon is absolutely a part of that. And he plays dirtier than anyone. Mm. And Brian, I think that some of that is, you know, and again, the question of reasonableness and how we define it uh, it has (laughs) changed. Yes, I use that word loosely. (laughs) Right. And you're right, though, where Sean Hannity is kind of 
almost milk a toast at this point. Like he, he sounds sort of baseline. And some of this is we wonder, well, why has th- have things accelerated in terms of the GOP moving to the right over the last decade? Well, some of that is you get the rise of YouTube and you get the rise of some of these other platforms where at least the Sean Hannity's the world, as we learned with Dominion, they work for these big corporate entities that especially post Dominion now understand that there's a lot of money on the line of letting your host say absolutely anything. And so they have some monetary incentive to rein things in. There was a memo that came down right after January 6th from, I think it was Cumulus, one of the big radio companies saying, look, you're not going to lie about this on the air, basically to all of their hosts, if you want to keep working here. Well, Mm. somebody who has a YouTube show or someone like Steve Bannon doesn't care at all about that. They don't, there are no limits on them. They can fight as dirty as they want to fight. And the other thing is, well, why is this picked up even more in the Trump years? It was that Trump legitimized people like Steve Bannon. There are people out there who are incredulous to hear me say this. They're like, wait a second, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, these guys were like the original extremists. But, you know, there was still always kind of like a firewall in politics um, and political media between the people who like top name Republican politicians wouldn't go on with. Uh, Michael Savage was always the exemplar on Mm. conservative radio because they were just too extreme or somebody like Alex Jones. Well, Donald Trump legitimized all of these people. His only standard was, are you with Trump? If you're with Trump, then it doesn't matter what you say, what you've done. And all of a sudden, these people were sort of part of the mainstream of conservative media. So now what you've got is even more extremists and putting more pressure on. And there's also a competition thing going on here. You know, if Steve Bannon is out there screaming about stuff like this, you better believe that Sean Hannity is aware of the fact that, look, if I don't sound as you know, extremist Steve Bannon, there are going to be people in my audience saying, you know, Sean, what happened to you? You used to be the leader. You're You're a a rhino. You're You're a a rhino. rhino. And again, what does that threaten? That threatens the bottom line. This is all about money. And you can't, Hmm. you can't underestimate how much that increase in in competition with the rise of the internet and proliferation of talk radio shows and proliferation of conservative cable channels has, you know, increased the pressure to sound even more extreme and to give not one little in to Democrats and to the the realities of governance. Right. Well, politicians are giving their voters exactly what they want. Fox hosts, radio stars are the conduit. And I I guess I'm I'm left wondering, how would this dynamic be different without right-wing media? Maybe it's an impossible question, Brian, but... Can you imagine that world? <laughs> I mean, I, I think we we know from history that that world would be better. I don't know that it would it would be as good today as it was even you know like forty years ago or fifty years ago where people got things done because there's a lot of other factors at play, including geographic polarization. You know, the main thing that pulled people to the center was for a lot of these people, if they weren't close enough to the center, they had to worry about losing. And without that dynamic and in districts where the most important election is decided by like the most activist conservative 11% or something like that, they, you know, the incentive structure would have changed anyway, even without conservative media. But conservative media is this massively powerful force where, you know, and sometimes it's not even the Hannity's of the world. They're more worried about the local hosts who can rail against them every day for a month or two months or three months who can bring a primary challenger on and undermine all of the power of incumbency, give them name recognition, rate, help them raise money, all of those kinds of things that has these guys running scared. And I think, the, you know, Abby mentioned the, the private votes and people being kind of depressed on the floor. 
Uh, last Friday, they had this vote where after they picked Jordan by a very underwhelming number in their caucus, they hold a second vote and says, you know, how many of you are willing to support him on the floor? And like 55 Republicans said no. Well, flash forward to the first public vote and only 20 people voted against Jordan. You better believe those other 35 didn't actually want to vote for him. But they're thinking through all of the political incentives and thinking, look, if we're not with Jim Jordan, we might invite a primary challenger. We might get bashed by conservative media. You know, this is just not a healthy politics. And I think it's a great explanation of how we got to a politics where the will of the majority of Americans, if you look at polling on a lot of issues, there should be no debate about some of these things. Like they're 75, 25, and yet we can't pass laws on them. Why is that? It's because the far fringe through conservative media, through the primary process, you know, thanks to to billionaires who can dole out, who can literally support one guy, like keep them in the game um, by pouring money in. We have a system now that that makes the fringe able to control things. And it, it creates the dynamic in the Republican caucus where who's driven the bus here for the last 10 months. It's been like the 20 most rightward members um, where the other 415 members of Congress or however many there are at a given moment have basically been like along for the ride as to, to what the fringe guys want. Yep. And now, Abby, after we finish recording, you get to go back up to Capitol Hill for another day of drama. And and look, a week from now, you know, a month from now, you know, it looks like Patrick McHenry may end up being a de facto short-term speaker. But bigger picture, what happens? What 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 do we lose out on? What does the country lose out on if the House GOP remains in this uh, this situation? Well, I mean, look. Uh we have another uh, deadline for a government shutdown looming. We're going to just rewind the tape and play it back again because it's going to be the same thing. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things is you actually saw this in the candidate forums um, because both uh, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan uh, came forward and they kind of pre- presented their ideas. And actually behind closed doors, Jim Jordan admitted uh, to the fact that, yeah, they probably need to pass another continuing resolution. And there's a deep irony to that because that was really the thing Kevin McCarthy did that prompted, you know, this ouster of him. And so I think we're just going to keep seeing this. And I think this chaos and these fissures within the party, they're only getting deeper. You know, this this whole speaker fight and everything that we've seen play out, you know, actually, honestly, since January, when Kevin McCarthy went through 15 rounds of votes before he was actually elected. And then, you know, you had the debt ceiling deal and then you had the government shutdown fight. I think these divides within the Republican caucus are only getting deeper and deeper. And the reality of having to work with Democrats is only becoming, you know, that much more potent to some of these members because I just don't see, you can't paper over some of the stuff that the Republican caucus has been through. So, you know, Unfortunately, Brian, like in a month, we might just have to re-upload this episode and just, <laughs> just no changes, no edits. And, and Brian, we should pause and note, these problems are happening over the basic rudiments of governing, like things that the pre-conservative media era were done by, you know, 375 vote majorities that were easy and simple. We're not even talking about addressing national problems. We're talking about keeping the lights on. We're talking about something that used to be easy for Congress even 20 years ago um, to do. And now it, it's like, oh, well, can they do this? Can they pull this off? And it's probably only going to get worse because the, the problem as this environment gets more toxic 
um, as they worry more about conservative media, as they worry about primaries, is a lot of the people who do care about governing are going to say, screw this, I'm retiring. Like, what, what, what is the point of being up here? Why should I get bashed constantly? Why should I get threatened? You know, Don Bacon um, is a moderate or more moderate. I, I like to call them governing Republicans um, from a <laughs> Biden district in Omaha, Nebraska. And he was even passing around to reporters text messages threatening him that his wife was getting. Like, who wants to put up with that um, if you want to govern and get things done and you can't? So then you get more Jim Jordans, and that just makes the whole thing worse. Oh, we're really going to end on a sad note today, aren't we? <laughs> but hey, that's that's where it stands. That's where it stands. That's the reality. Brian Rosenwald, Abby Tracy, thank you both so much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. <laughs> And my thanks once again to Abigail Tracy, national political reporter for Vanity Fair. Read her work at VanityFair.com. And Brian Rosenwald, director of the Red and Blue Exchange at the University of Pennsylvania, senior editor of Made by History, and author of Talk Radio's America. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Gabe Caroga. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let us know what you think of the program. Send feedback for future episodes. You can email me at bselter at gmail.com or tweet me or thread me or X me, whatever we call it now. I'm at Brian Stelter. We'll be back next Thursday for more Inside the Hive. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.